Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly, and on this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Derek DeYoung. Derek and I talk about everything from his first art competition as a kid uh, to his fascination with karaoke and everything in between. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before we move on to the interview, though, just a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, first of all, if you like the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you tell a friend and leave a review in the podcatcher of your choice. And also, if you haven't done this yet, please check out our new mobile apps. We've got an app for the iPhone, and we've got an app for Android phones. And all you have to do is search the Articulate Fly in the app store of your choice. It's free, and it's the best way to stay in touch with what we're doing, and we're going to be pushing out content that's only available in the app very, very soon. And before we move on to the interview, just want to give a shout-out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Norvice. Their motto is tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. To see for yourself, visit www.nor-vice.com, or even better, visit with them at the International Fly Tying Symposium on November 23rd and 24th in Parsippany, New Jersey. From now until the end of November, Articulate Fly listeners can get 20% off their entire order by using the coupon code THEARTICULATEFLY, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout on the Norvice website. Now on to our interview. Well, welcome to the Articulate Fly, Derek. I'm really excited to have you on. Marvin, I appreciate you having me on. And I, I actually knew I liked you instantly because my middle name is Marvin. Yeah, we talked about that in Denver. That's pretty funny. I don't run across a lot of Marvins. <laughs> no, my grandfather's name was Marvin, and he was uh, just an absolute... Um, awesome human being and i i'm i'm thinking that everyone with that name has those traits hopefully well, I, i'll try to i'll try to live up to that and i'm the fourth marvin so uh yeah it's all good um nice yeah and so that's a really nice kind of segue into my traditional articulate fly question which is to share your earliest fishing memory and i suspect some of those have to do with fishing with your grandfather um actually uh grandpa marvin was afraid of the water and, um, he passed away when I was seven years old. So I had already begun fishing, but I really didn't fish with him too much. Um, I would say earliest fishing memory. We grew up, um, on Millhouse Bayou in, uh, Southwest Michigan. And it was connected to the Grand River, which is the biggest river in the state. Kind of picture like a small version of the Mississippi, kind of muddy. And that goes out to Lake Michigan. It's about a 35-minute boat ride out to the big lake, which we rarely did. But um, as a kid, we had absolute freedom on Millhouse Bayou. And uh, we would um, use our kind of uh, pass to trespass. You know, when you're a kid, you don't get in trouble. So um, we would walk the entire shoreline or as much of it as we could because it did get pretty swampy in the back and fish all day long. And I'm the youngest of three brothers. So they were fishing when I was in diapers. And the second my mom set me down and let me follow them, that's what I was going to do. So um, I just remember following my big brothers around the bayou and watching them catch fish and how excited they were. And shoot, by the time I could do it, I was already programmed to be a lifelong fisherman. Yeah, that's super cool. How how much older are your older brothers? 
two and five years older. So just old enough where they were completely developmentally ahead of me. But I always thought I was, you know, like them. I was just really a kind of easy target for them. Any, Any trick they wanted to play, they used to have this scary story they would tell. And I've passed this story down to uh, kids that I've, you know, had in my life over the years, but we would be camping out in our front yard and uh, they'd tell this story around the campfire about old man Millhouse, who was the mill keeper at the back of our bayou. And at some point had some terrible accident and got sawed in half. And about the time that they would tell the gruesome like details of that, one of them would jump up and, and say he heard something down by the water and they'd all go running off into the darkness and leave me by myself. So, <laughs> and it worked because I was younger and absolutely uh, terrified. Yeah. It sounds like another version of the snipe hunt. <laughs> a little meaner, a little more Halloweeny. It, absolutely. So you started chasing after your older brothers and fishing. When did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because having fly fished and been part of this industry for uh, such a long time, I try to think about when I realized that it was something different, that there were, you know, different approaches and different types of people fishing. Um, because we always had my dad's childhood fly fish, like fly rods, like old Shakespeare's, nothing nice and nothing had the appropriate line to, to a rod size. And, um, so it was just whatever clearance fly line he picked up like 25 years ago was on the reel, but there were probably four or five fly rods in the rafters and, I mean, springtime, we fought over who got the best fly rod. And we all spread out along the shore and caught bluegills and bass all day long. So I didn't really even understand at that point that we were doing something with, you know, the history and heritage of fly fishing. I just knew it was the most fun way to do it. So that was probably how I started fly fishing. It wasn't until, you know, I was much older and started seeing magazines and, and TV shows on Saturday mornings that I started to go, oh, these people like use that rod that I use, but they do all this other stuff with it. And I had no idea. That's really cool. So you fished with your older brothers. Were they your uh, angling and hunting mentors or were there other folks in your life that kind of helped you get steeped in the Michigan outdoor tradition? Well, I would say the sibling rivalry was very thick between us. And uh, being the youngest, I mean, if I could outfish one of my older brothers, you know, that was like winning the Super Bowl. So, and and we're all very competitive. So, yeah, they, they definitely got me to try as hard as I could because, boy, if I, if I outfished them, I was going to tell that story for years to come. And, and, uh, my oldest brother, Matt still to this day fishes a lot. Um, and for, he's the editor of uh, our hometown newspaper. 
but for a lot of years he was like the sporting outdoors editor so that was kind of cool and kind of followed his upbringing as well with fishing and hunting but my um my dad his brothers um grandpa on my dad's side um they all are huge fishermen in every type of you know they they like to food fish really walleye poach bluegills anything that fries up real good that's what they want to catch and and watch out because they have like they're those like sixth sense type fishermen like you can go try to catch perch with uncle dar he'll have 25 in the boat before you even get a bite (laughs) just crazy you know i'm sure you fish with people like that yeah super dialed in it's just a lifetime almost generations deep of just having that mindset yeah and um but yeah, and they—I mean, anything that you can hunt for, they hunt for. That they live and breathe it. So, yeah, it all seemed pretty normal to me. Um, I, you know, to to put it in terms of a mentor, um, doesn't seem right. It's more so if you grow up on a ranch with cattle and horses, that's just what you do and what you know. You think everybody does that, right? Yeah. But, you know, I learned later on, it was funny, in high school, I didn't have a single friend that was into fishing. I would bring all my friends that I played athletics with out fishing, and they'd get so mad because I'd tell them, let's just go out in the little uh, shore boat for an hour. And about a half hour after dark, five hours later, we'd finally roll in, and they would just, oh, Derek, every time, every single time. He keeps you out there all day, but it's like, Hey, I, I would have come in in an hour if the fish weren't biting, but they weren't. Yeah. (laughs) You got to have your priorities. Right. It's an addiction. I don't think too many people who are truly into fishing don't call it an addiction because once you get going on it, it's, it's hard to stop. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, it makes kind of my next question probably almost impossible to answer. Can you even think about what your life and your art career would be like if you hadn't grown up uh, in that rich Michigan fishing and hunting tradition? You know, just by spirit, I think a lot of us are adventurers um, and we kind of pick what what kind of pastime hobby is going to express that need to have adventure so i mean i'm totally that way um love setting up really challenging outdoor trips and adventures and doing everything myself including bringing my boat to crazy places and um fixing my boat to some degree i'm no mechanic but just you know you're forced to have to do some uh some boat maintenance and fixing and rebuilding systems and things like that so I don't know um, if I've had no experience doing the the whole fishing thing. Um, I think it would just be some other type of adventurous thing like mountain biking or hiking or, or uh, some type of water sport. Got it. And, you know, uh, learning more about you preparing for the interview. I mean, it, it was, I think from a very early age, like elementary school, you were referred to as the artist. 
And um, I was just curious when you decided to make art your career. Never. Never decided it because it was never in question. I was always going to do it. Um, one of those stupid, just like non-question, Derek's going to be an artist. Like amongst any group I was with, that was what was expected of me for my future. And um, I never questioned it. And it's probably a big reason that I've had some success. I never thought like, oh, I'll switch this up. Like, or maybe I could do this or that. It's like, nope. You know, when, when I got into, you know, quote unquote, being a professional artist, which I would consider once I got out of art school, the economy was absolutely trashed. And I was in Michigan. And for everyone out there who doesn't understand how tied to the auto industry Michigan is, you know, you've got the huge actual GM and Ford plants that many people got laid off from, but there were shops, machine shops, uh, pattern building, all kinds of different industries that were completely based on making bumpers and mirrors and parts for those cars. And those were spread all over Michigan. And all of those people were making good money, potentially able to buy art and they were all laid off too. So that's what I came into, um, trying to sell paintings. And I remember people just going, oh, my gosh, like, these are just terrible breaks for you. You know, here you are, this talented artist. You likely would have made a great living at it. But here you are in this economy. You're not going to make it. And I just thought to myself, I have never had more than a couple bucks in my pocket. I don't need to get rich but I do need to make my art and I, this is what I want to do. So there's just not even a question. I'm going to push through and make as much or as little money as I can selling my paintings. And it's just funny because over the years, you know, people who really are concerned and care for me have get, you know, most of them have put their foot in their mouth and advised me to switch careers. And I think if they were telling this story, they would say that I just had the most just non-receptive dead look in my eye. Like, okay, let's finish this conversation and start talking about fishing. Cause I'm not going to switch my career. You know, luckily um, the economy began to recover. And I, during that time, the first three years of my career, I was able to figure a lot of things out and, and discover kind of who I wanted to be as an artist moving forward and um, not only that, um, my father-in-law is a, a money manager and an entrepreneur, and um, he knew that it was important that we knew how to run a business, even though, gosh, I wouldn't even call it a business at that point. It just cost us money, just paying for supplies and, and um, entries into shows and booth stuff. Um, but he had a CPA that was a family friend and, and he signed us up with him. And so we would go like once a month and this guy was big into wine. So he'd have about four bottles of very specific wine that he would, you know, like uh, one bottle was for when we were going over all these different things for our business and how to set up 
then a pre-dinner wine, then like a Cabernet for during the main course, and then an after-dinner wine. And by the time we left that place, I was so shit-faced. But <laughs> we, we little by little did learn all the right ways to start and run a business right from the get-go. So we didn't like spend five years kind of doing it incorrectly and have to make up for that. So I've always looked back at that time and been extremely appreciative of that guidance. No, absolutely. It's, it's important to have people that believe in you and what you're trying to do on the, on the art side of being an artist, who were some of the folks that mentored you as you developed? Well, I've, this is kind of one of the most impactful things uh, that happened to me as an artist, because um, when I was a kid, I I wasn't all that humble about my art. I thought I was going to be the next big thing. And I guess, you know, that's what my grandparents told me. So I believed it and uh, had no reason why to question it. So my art teacher, Mrs. McGelfish, that's a real name. Uh, she had like a memo that was like an entry into the Michigan United Conservation Club Youth Wildlife Art Competition. That's a mouthful. And um, anyway, she walks right over. She doesn't even like read it to the class. She just walks right over, sets it in front of me. And uh, at the time I was in, I think, uh, fourth grade. So I brought it home. My dad and I read over it and I got a nice piece of paper and got my pencils out and set up a desk in front of his trophy mounted walleye in the basement. And I sat there and carefully drew this walleye and uh, looked up what kind of minnows they eat in Michigan and in the encyclopedia. Not, we didn't look at the computer and, uh, I got, you know, some pictures of those minnows. I drew five or six minnows in front, a few little rocks and weeds. And the the, uh, first place prize was a $200 uh, savings bond. I didn't even know what a savings bond was, but I pictured it as cash in my wallet. And I absolutely already had like three fishing rods and a bunch of lures picked out from the big Bass Pro catalog that sat around our house. So we end up, we drive the two hours to uh, Lansing, the state capital. Uh, my cousin came and met us. She was going to school at Michigan State. And uh, I mean, I thought we were going to walk in and they were going to like spot me and go, oh, there's the winner. Here's your blue ribbon. You know, it was not even a question. I'd, I'd won it. I look around, my family and I spread out, looking through the whole exhibit trying to find my piece. We finally find it in some dark little corner. It didn't even get, there was a like first place in like 15 honorable mentions and it didn't even get an honorable mention. And I'll never forget that because that was the moment I realized that I got to like get better. Like here, I, I thought I was, you know, the top guy. And I absolutely got my butt kicked. So we get back in the minivan and start heading back to Grand Haven. There's not even a noise. No, the radio's not on. Dead silence. I think even 
my parents were a little bit like in shock because they thought I wanted to. And uh, about a couple miles into the ride, my dad kind of turns around and he's kind of a no nonsense, not real empathetic type of guy. Uh, he's just like, well, you can sit there and mope about it or you can figure out what you got to do to get better. He goes, I went and looked. And like first, second, third, fourth place were all paintings. You don't even know how to paint. So that's it. You got to start taking painting lessons. And about two months later, I was enrolled. A local famous artist in Grand Haven, as famous as you can get as being an artist in Grand Haven, offered art lessons. And myself and about four or five other young people would go every week and, and learn from him and paint. And I did that for a few years and his name was Bob Mischmerheisen. And I would definitely credit him as being just an absolute catalyst for me to just, like that was when I really started catching on and learning all the the basics of art and able to kind of utilize those to, to do what I wanted to do. But that was that was just such a big thing because I think had I just won that, I would have just rested on, you know, what skill I already had and and not sought out to get better. No, got it. That's really interesting. And was that walleye drawing, was that the first time that fishing and art intersected with you or did you always draw nature things? You know, it was definitely not the first, but I think it was maybe the first time um, I really sat down and made a finished piece on a larger piece of paper. Um, You know, back at that time, you know, in art class at school, uh, you know, it it was a little bit tough to kind of bring fish into most of those projects. Um, so, but on my own time in my sketchbooks, I would constantly be drawing bass and, and stuff like that. Just not, I didn't sit down and really, you know, I approached this one as like a still life. I had the walleye right in front of me and, you know, drew every detail. So in a way it kind of was. Got it. And how does, you know, what's the interaction between your fishing and your fishing art and, you know, how do they inform each other kind of really going in both directions? You know, um, I think had I been an artist for, you know, a long period of my life and then started fishing, I would probably approach fishing much more so as just an extension of my art. Um, And I I would say people who fish with me would definitely say, Derek, you know, everyone's got their own approach to fishing, right? Um, If you're very scientifically minded, you can break it into really enjoying that part of fly fishing, the entomology and, you know, some people it's all about tying the flies. Um, For me, it is about like that visual experience. And, um, but I've already been fishing for, you know, my whole life as well as doing my artwork. And I, I'm a very workmanlike fisherman. I, I work really hard at it. Um, 
and I want to do as well as I possibly can. That being said, if it's not the right day, I'm able to, you know, the older I get, the more I'm able to chill out. But, um, no, I, I give everything I've got to it. Yeah. So it's really just like your art. It's kind of, it sounds like you're kind of full speed and whatever you're focused on at that moment. Yeah. I mean, um, I think about down in the keys, uh, bringing my friends and family out and a lot of them, you know, don't have much experience fishing the salt. Now I'm very kind of intense about making sure I've trapped some pinfish and I've got some pinfish in case the fishing's tough or we see an opportunity and I've got all the rods rigged. I sit at night and rig rods. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to show up at your boat and go, well, what should we rig? Like I've sat there and had my scotch or, or a glass of wine the night before and rigged everything and thought about it. Cause you know, that's what I love doing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of funny you say that. Cause there's a, there's a whole kind of meditation and so many things around fishing that have nothing to do with catching the fish. No, it's yeah. It's it runs a lot deeper than that. Doesn't it? It does. It, and we talked about this a little bit in Denver, um, and I know you've shifted over time, but, you know, what's your preferred medium and how has it evolved over your career? Well, <clears throat> I never thought I would say that I'm a um, acrylic painter because I just hated acrylic paints. Um, uh started using oil back in high school probably junior in high school, I switched to oil and I never looked back once. A couple of times just because I needed to do a project and have it dry quick, I used acrylic and I just was like, how do other artists use this? I hate it. And the method that I used, um, I still remember back in my art school days, there was another painter there and I loved the look of his paintings. And I asked him about it one day and he said, well, I use what's called wet on wet technique. And I'm like, okay, what's that? And he's like, well, I, I actually go from start to finish on an oil painting and I'm adding, um, you know, wet oil paint over, over wet oil paint under it. But there's a technique and, you know, you, you go from the thickest to the thinnest and certain colors have to go down first because the color beneath it will contaminate it. Um, but anyway, once I tried that, I was in love with that technique and I used it all the way up till, um, probably 2010 or 12 when I started suffering from headaches every time I would go down in my studio and it became apparent pretty quickly that I developed an allergy probably to the paint thinner. And at that point I was like, you know what? I've just got to bite the bullet and make the change. And, um, it was a tough six months. Um, you know, all the techniques that I had developed were, you know, I don't use at all. So those little trademark little things that I would do that you would see in, in my paintings versus other people's like now I'm, I'm starting at a very, I don't know, more elementary level. And, um, it was actually a really good thing because it, it made me again, push hard to 
learn this new medium. And I think I'm a better painter now at, with acrylic than I ever was in oil. And I've developed all new tricks and ways of working and favorite colors. I mean, for me, I've got like six or seven colors by a certain brand that I wouldn't know what to do if those weren't laying there under my easel because I just love those colors so much. Um, and in oil paint, I had my six or seven and, and now in acrylic, I've, I've found those too. So it all worked out in the end, but it definitely was a tough transition. Very cool. And I know early on in your art career, um, you realized the importance of developing a unique style. Why is that so important for an artist? You know, um, I had a professor back in the day, Sandy Ringlever was her name at Kendall, um, small art school in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, I would do a project for her class that I absolutely, you know, just felt like I killed it. I just would come in so proud thinking it's going to be one of the best in the class. And she did me the favor, as did several other professors, of never, you know, being impressed with my art. Like, that is such an important thing for a professor. Because if you're, you know, if you're just going to go, oh, my God, look at this. This is amazing. And just give me praise. Once again, I'm just going to kind of think I've made it. She would look at it and go, well, this is all well and good but I've seen 150 of these in the last two months. What separates you from them? You know, it's not vastly better and it's not different. It's just more of the same. And she'd hand it back to me. And I, at the time was just blown out of the water, like so sad. And, and you know, I've got the, uh, the typical artist ego that's quite fragile but I, I also am the type of person who works very well off of negative criticism. So it's important that I have people that'll keep me, you know, pushing forward. Um, so I would walk back to my house and just sit and think about what she said. And it, it didn't take long for me to realize, like, I'm able to come up with something fresh and new that she hasn't seen ever before. I just have to harness that. And that's when I really started focusing on how to, you know, approach things in new ways, make people see things in a new way or, or just take a subject to a new place and, um, and how much fun that is. You know, if you're seeing fish in the same genre of painting over and over again, what happens is it just gets stagnant. And even if it's done beautifully, you kind of, oh, yep, that, that's another scene like that. Okay, seen those before. That's a nice one, but, well, I didn't want that. You know, as an artist, I put my absolute heart and soul into my artwork, and to have someone, you know, barely glance at it would just not do justice to what I'm trying to do. So I really wanted to push fish art to a completely new new um genre new space i'm not sure what the right term here would be but i didn't want it to be the same old thing i wanted people to really have to look and examine 
my art in order to, you know, understand what's going on or appreciate what I've done. And I, I guess that's really what started me off with, with feeling like I wanted to do something, um, you know, totally different from the pack. Got it. And so how would you describe your style? Uh, shoot, uh, maybe ADD. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm super easily bored. Um, and I love doing new things. The crucial part is that each kind of series of paintings I do contain a quality level, a palette, maybe just things that are derivative to previous styles, not, not to completely step away from what I've done in the past. And I do think that's important, but at the same time, I was telling you about doing some film editing yesterday. And when I watch the raw footage, as I put it together, I'm constantly going, am I bored? Is this droning on? Because if I'm bored, like you know, whoever else watches this was probably bored three seconds earlier. So I've got to figure out a way to keep the energy going, keep it fun, keep it exciting. So it's, I feel like my viewers of my art, it's the same thing. If I'm bored, they're bored. So I've got to keep entertaining myself and figuring out new ways of doing things and and improving and evolving as an artist so that they can see that evolution and, and get some joy out of it and, and see, uh, you know, see their favorite subject matter, which is fly fishing in a new way that they haven't seen before. No, that's really neat. And kind of stepping back a little bit, what does that arc of evolution look like, say from when you got out of art school to where you are today? Well, okay. In my office, which it's actually Janelle's office. Janelle runs uh, the young studio and, and keeps me organized and moving forward in, in my career. Um, so in her office is a large photorealistic painting of one of my neighbor, childhood neighbors, this old guy. He was just very interesting to me. And it's probably five foot by three foot. And I used the like grid. Um, I I did like the grid system where I took a photo of them. I um, put a grid down on the photo, then I put a grid down on the canvas, and then I enlarged every grid space on the photo to be like 17 by uh, 11, whatever size paper I had, and then taped that above and just tried to capture every detail I could in that giant, you know, thing. And then I'd move to the next square. And a lot of people still do stuff like that. I did that. And, um, that was one of the pieces that I entered for scholarship days in which I ended up getting second place and almost a full ride in art school. So that was where I was and it served me well. And I was pretty good at it. Not as good as some of the guys you see now doing that type of stuff. But I knew that wasn't my future. It it didn't really connect with kind of my energy level. Um, It really kind of took my creative soul and stifled it. I could do it, but 
it wasn't what I wanted to do. So in art school, I, um, I mostly, I painted and did a lot of illustration classes and, and again, was mostly represent, you know, representative with, you know, my work, no abstract stuff. Um, and during that time I did a lot of fish, like whatever the subject was, I would add fish to it. So I, I gained a reputation around the school as being the fish artist pretty quickly. Um, but it wasn't until I got out of art school and really started looking at what the like kind of art culture in fly fishing was that I started to go, if I want to be different, if I want to do something that hasn't been done, more contemporary um, style, composition, and colors are not being used. That was the first thing I noticed. And that really wasn't what my portfolio looked like. But I started trying to kind of push it and looked at other more contemporary art in other subject matters to see how they approached it and, and just slowly develop my own much more contemporary style than, than what was out there. Very neat. And I've heard you say, uh, on a couple of occasions that you aren't the best painter, but you think you're one of the most creative ones. What does that mean? Well, if you're familiar with kind of art, it's, if it can be judged, which I think it can, but some people don't feel that way. Um, you break it down into kind of different segments, if you will. And one is um, execution. Um, then, then another is a concept. Another is composition, but the execution is just one part and it's kind of the end part that has to do with how well you actually put paint on canvas. And there are some painters out there that just absolutely blow my mind. They're just so good at it. Um, and of course, everybody's different in what they're good at in art. My strength has always been concept and composition. And I've worked extremely hard to be the best painter I can be. That being said, there's some painters out there that just, you know, I just can't believe how good they are. So that's kind of what I mean by that is just that. That that's that's something that I have to work hard to achieve a high level of execution versus some of these guys that just have it. Now that being said, some of their work lacks concept and lacks composition. You know, so it just you can't have everything in life. No, absolutely. It's all about the trade offs. You know, it's it's interesting too, and you and I touched on this a little bit when uh, we were together in Denver. You know, you you you're gifted, and you see a different way of bringing your art into the world, right? You know, whether it's um, you know different media or different applications. And I was really curious when you paint something, do you paint it for yourself, or do you paint it with a particular audience in mind? I definitely paint it for myself. Um, you know, I, I think of my time at the easel as being very much my own and my own, like, 
it's kind of, but that's my career. I only get one. And if I paint for money or if I paint commercially versus my, my approach and, and the older I get, the more I approach it this way is I realize, you know, I want to become the best painter I can possibly be at this point in my life. And I want to then expand on that. And in the next decade, become that much better. And you only do that if you're constantly critiquing and working for yourself with no thought to the audience or artist whatsoever, or not, not artist, but the audience or the end consumer. So for me, I'm, I'm working in a way that I want to be able to look back, you know, towards the end of my career and go, yes, you chased it. You pushed it as hard as you could and you painted for the, the right reasons and you can see it in the work versus, you know, it just being, and I think everybody comes out ahead when you approach it that way, because, you know, my clients get better art and I produce better art. I'm happier and um, fulfilling my potential. And, you know, I think that that's probably one of the biggest things for any of us in our careers is that we just want to fulfill our potential. Uh, that's really, really interesting. And I know for you that whether you're solving an art problem or a fishing problem, you have a lot of respect for tradition and process. Uh, and I was really curious where that came from for you. You know, what, what it really boils down to is when I came out of art school, uh, I went to art school at a time when it was just the cusp of computer design. At the time, I'd never had a computer at my house. I didn't even know how to turn one on. And uh, I failed my first, like, introduction to computer design class. So that, that ages me and dates me. But um, it also is what probably instilled that extremely traditional sense of it takes a lot of skill to do these traditional, um, you know, painting, drawing, being able to look at something or think of something and execute on that drawing versus, you know, projecting it or using some type of digital assistance. And so for me, I'll never, I'll never switch and utilize those technologies because I just feel like it's becoming a lost art. And it's for me, an important thing to my style and, and just the look of my art. No, that's really neat. And, you know, it's interesting too. I was curious. I mean, obviously you fish a lot, but can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, where the inspiration for your pieces comes from? Cause it's really, you know, you're not photorealistic, right? So the fish is part of it, but that's really, there's much more to the creative process, I think, than just that. Oh yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, just sitting quietly staring off into the oblivion and just trying to visualize something interesting, you know, that maybe I think happens or maybe I saw happen. And then trying to work out all the visual problems in my sketchbook. Some, 
some sculptures that I just completely make up the scene. I mean, they take me, you know, a full day of just drawing it over and over and over again um, before I think it looks right. Now, that being said, it certainly isn't scientifically perfectly proportioned and correct, but it, you know, I'm not of the, I'm not of kind of that type of artist. Like, I don't need that for it to be a good painting. So I'm more trying to communicate something that I want to connect with, you know, other people who spend uh, too much time fishing like me and have seen these things. And um, when they see it in my artwork, they go, okay, yes, I've seen that. That is awesome. I can't believe that guy did that. That's, that's what I'm shooting for. And that said, you know, I love um, filming fish. Uh, I like to set GoPros out in areas that I know fish cross over that area or there's schools around that zone. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll get three hours of footage, cut it down to 15 minutes where the fish was present. And then I will uh, take three frames from that video and, and sit in front of my computer with my sketchbooks and draw the, like, just gesture body positions that I see the fish in and, um, and just learn and absorb how a fish moves and what ways it bends and how does it hold its fins when it's doing this or that. And um, that's been a, a really um, cool thing for me to be able to do just to really learn a lot about fish. Yeah, that, that's really neat. And so in terms of when you go to actually paint, do you like to paint every day or do you, do you basically block out and say, I'm going to really go hard for this period of time and then I'm going to take a break and do something else for a while? So Marvin, back in kind of the, uh, about 10 years ago when I kind of first hit the scene and um, I'll be honest with you, my prices were much uh, cheaper <laughs> and people were seeing my work a lot in, in the fly fishing magazines and stuff. I would probably work at the easel 45 hours a week. And, you know, I would go until I was just about ready to keel over. And um, a couple of things happened during that period. One, I don't feel like that was my strongest work. Um, two, I developed just this crazy, like, back um, – I don't want to say injury, but what happened is uh, from doing all that detail work day in and day out, um, it started to like kind of tighten up my entire arm all the way like till I couldn't even sleep at night because my pinky would be just like hurt so bad. Um, all the muscles and tendons pulling on it. And, um, and I also wasn't very happy to be totally honest with you, I would, you know, I enjoyed what I was doing, but I just, I didn't have that sense of like really doing my best because I was just not giving myself the opportunity to recharge. So I kind of recognized that and decided to change the way that I ran my entire career and started taking 
less commissions um, and, uh, you know, doing two or three paintings in a row and then taking a week off. And then that week I can, you know, there's plenty of other things that need to be done for the studio or the young studio. So take the week off and help Janelle or get ready for a show or build canvases. And of course, spend some time on the water chasing fish. And I have found that that has completely changed how I paint, how I feel about my artwork. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a luxury really, because I think most, most people have to take every job that comes their way. And I, and I was that way too, but I just eventually decided that wasn't how I was going to move forward. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I would completely agree with that. I think creating the space to live your authentic self is much harder than most people think. You have to you have to commit to it. I really think that you have to, especially being, you know, I have no boss who's going to either A, work me like a rented mule or B, say you need to be you know more concerned with your life balance i have to recognize these things and make those choices and i've become much more capable of doing that as time's gone on but you know in my in my 20s and early 30s if someone wanted me to do a painting for him i was going to do it and i was going to you know take every job i could get no to- totally get it. it makes a lot of sense and you know, one of the things too, that's interesting, right? We talked a little bit early, earlier in this interview about how you have a different way of seeing where your art can live in the world. And I was really curious if your creative process is different for making an original versus maybe you have an idea that you think is better uh, represented on a, on a branded product. Does, is the process the same or is it different? It's, it's very close. It's not exactly the same. But um, another one of those kind of career decisions was this, you know, Janelle and I produce a line of product that showcases my artwork and um, we sell it on our website and we sell it wholesale to shops all over the place. And it started to become apparent that, oh, oh, we need this illustration or we need, well, wouldn't this be a great thing? Can you quickly do that? And, you know, before you know it, you have like a, just folders of all these, um, what I wouldn't consider to be fine art. And um, I finally just one day said, Janelle, we got to sit down and talk. I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, the Young Studio moving forward is based upon my fine art. So what, what inspires me, what I feel drawn to do at the easel is then what's used on the product, not what product do we want to do? Okay, go in and, and uh, do a piece of art for that. So I just feel like long-term for my, my you know, career, that is going to make me be, you know, do better work, become a better artist. And, you know, it's me who's at the wheel. I've got to choose if I'm going to be an illustrator or a fine artist. And, and me personally, I want to be a fine artist. That's all I've ever wanted. 
That's really neat. And, you know, kind of shifting gears a little bit to talk about community. Do you, uh, are there artists that you share ideas with, or do you like to figure things out more or less on your own? Um, there's a couple artists, not many that I will, uh, discuss things with, you know, maybe their paintings are, or one of mine, um, more so than that. Uh, we just talk about the industry or just kind of, you know, the commonality of our careers and what we go through and commiserate a little bit and make jokes about it. Um, I think that's probably more important than actual art critique or anything like that. Although once in a while I'll use those guys to eye something that I know isn't right and I don't have the right reference for it. So I've got to solve that visual problem, you know, just based on what I know. And sometimes having a, another set of eyes on it can really make the difference. No, it's important to have those people close to you that uh, you trust to give you uh, good feedback. Right. Um, What's, what's kind of funny is that um, I love other artists. Uh, we are a, a breed of people for sure. And, um, you know, my days in art school, I just, you know, most artists are just kind of strange in, in a good way. Um, but after I left art school and kind of started doing what I do, uh, seems like most of my friends are fly fishing guides and <laughs> that they're a breed too. Um, yes, so I'm they a are. Weird artist guy amongst this breed of, of fly fishing guides and no, but it just, those things work, work in, uh, the way they're supposed to. And, um, it's, it's all good. It's funny. That's neat. How do you feel when your style gets copied, right? Does it make you angry? Do you think, you know, people are being lazy as artists or do you just kind of view it as your contribution to kind of the evolutionary spiral? Well, um, it's a good question, but I really choose not to allow myself to get worked up about things like that. Um, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, I might've gotten fired up when someone did something that I, I deemed to be, you know, pretty much plagiarizing me. But as the years have gone on, I just, first of all, it does nothing to focus on, you know, calling people out or, or feeling negative about it. And, um, I think it is more like what you say. It's just like an evolution of fly fishing art. New things are, you know, they see what direction I'm going in and they try to take it and push it, you know, a step further or add their own flair to it. And I think a lot of them do a really good job of it. And, um, I think those artists, um, you know, keep the pressure on me, which is a good thing and keep me pushing forward and trying to get better and trying to be the best artist in, in the fly fishing world but um some of them you know don't put their own flair on it and just kind of use those ideas and try to you know i don't know maybe maybe they don't have the ability to kind of push it any further than where it is so 
in those cases, I can, you know, feel a little frustrated, but I don't focus on it. That's for sure. Cause it's just not worth it. Yeah, no, life's, life's too short for sure. And, you know, we talked earlier, obviously you fish to, uh, to relax, but what are some other things you do to recharge your creative batteries? Um, well, this is, uh, this is one thing I've never said in an interview, but this, so this is inside info. Um, at, at the DeYoung house, there is often, um, karaoke being sang and any of my friends who, uh, come over to our house, know that DeYoung is going to turn the karaoke on at some point during the night and force them to sing something. (laughs) So that's fun. Um, As cheesy as it sounds, it's absolutely a blast. And it's just, you know, people just take to it. It it brings people totally alive, you know. Um, The other thing that I've been doing a lot lately, and it's funny because I – pretty much have the same approach as I would for fishing or art. And, um, I'm a bit of a rock hound and I've bought a rock saw and a, um, kind of a, a polishing, um, machine. And, uh, I love going out there and putting the headphones on and picking a part of an agate that I found and trying to, uh, use the diamond thing and, and get down to where the, pattern is and i'll sit out there all evening come inside super excited to show janelle what you know the rock after all the stuff i've done to it and and she uh placates me and and kind of gets excited about it and we've got them displayed all around our house so that's kind of fun very very neat and you know i have a similar question i ask uh, my fishing guide uh, guests but um, i always ask artists to share what they think the biggest misconception people have about about art and the life of an artist oh well <laughs> um there's there's several and i don't know that you know most stereotypes somewhere down deep are based on truth. <laughs> so I can't say that they're totally incorrect or even, you know, for everybody, for me, um, when people hear I'm an artist that have no idea, you know, what my art is, they instantly start talking to me. Like I'm like a kid. Oh, you're an artist. Wonderful. Well, good for you. Now, what kind of art do you do? I'm like, do you talk to anybody else like that when you ask them what they do? Is <laughs> it's just so weird? Like, no, I mean, it's it's an actual career, a job, and I've got days when I've got to do paperwork and taxes and quotes, and you know, it's yeah, I'm not just like sitting there painting daisies and you know. I don't know. I don't know what people envision being an artist is, but it's funny how some people react to it. (laughs) That's a, that's a funny story for sure. And, you know, obviously, and we were talking about this yesterday, um, you know, you've become one of the most visible, successful brands in the fly fishing art world. And I was wondering if you could share with us that moment where you knew you were, had moved, you know, beyond, I think you said when you graduated from art school, you said, now I'm a professional artist. When you moved from that point in time to you're like, I'm a brand. That's a good question. Um, I kind of feel like, 
you know, reflecting in that way is hard for me because I still feel like I'm midway through the race. So <laughs> maybe someday I'll break it down and figure that out. Um, but it was probably um, in the first couple of years of living in Montana, I moved from Grand Rapids in the house that we, we lived in through art school. And um, uh, that was probably 2007. I, I came out to uh, Denver and did like kind of a tour of art shows around the West. And um, this was my first taste of bringing my art to the West as well as fishing out there. And I just completely blew my mind and the people were so welcoming and, and just uh, encouraging to me. And when I got back home from that trip, I told my wife, we're moving out to Montana. And she uh, pretty much just started bawling because she, <laughs> you know, it's a little harder thing for some women. Um, you know, she had a good job and things were stable and she understood how, you know, and now here we're going to throw a wrench in it, go out to Montana where we don't know anybody and we don't, you know, have, she doesn't have a job and, but we moved out there and she got a job with a local printing company in Livingston and, um, things went great and my career really started to, take off and probably you know a year or two after we moved out there i would say i started to kind of see that i was building a brand versus just your normal art career i guess very neat and i know you've got a different approach too so you know most artists you know they'll sell their originals and their license you know prints and things like that but pretty early on you you realized that you wanted to control your brand more closely and you created uh the young studios where did that idea come from to be the direct uh, maker of, uh, you know, whether it's ore wraps or fly boxes or hats or buffs or glasses? Where did that idea come from? Well, let me start off by saying it was the dumbest decision I ever made. Um, if you went to take up a ton of days that you would have preferred to be floating down the Yellowstone River, start a product company. Um, because for every dollar made, the amount of hours worked is so much greater than that of, you know, what I do as a fine artist. And I have a lot of other artists talk to me about this. Like, well, you know, maybe I'd like to start something like that. And I'm always like, first of all, you got to, you know, follow your dreams and do you know, what you envision for your career, but think twice because, <laughs> and now you're talking about a real responsible career where, you know, you have to have stuff done on time for these companies and places that sell our stuff. If an order is supposed to be there by a certain time, you're, you're not going fishing. It doesn't matter what hatch is happening. Whereas if I have an original painting going and my friends call and say, oh, my gosh, the stonefly hatch is going crazy. You have me in the morning? Yes, I do. And I'm going. So <laughs> that's a big difference. Um, but truly, um, working with Sims in the early days, uh, 
I, it was a little different back then. I worked directly with, um, a guy who I became good friends with and we would come up with the stuff that we, they were going to make with my art on it for the year. And over time they would, you know, shoot down a lot of the coolest things we came up with. And it didn't work for every market or it just didn't work for that, like kind of large of a company to do. And, um, it just became apparent that if I had no red tape or no committee to get product approved by, I could do any of these cool products that I want to. And that being said, I've got an extremely talented and beautiful wife, Janelle, and I've always wanted her to have her own business. Um, you can imagine I've never had a real job other than, you know, this, and I've always been able to travel and take time off when I want. And she's worked for corporate America and gets, you know, two to three weeks vacation a year. So we're, we're living very different lives at that time. And that's tough for a marriage. Um, so I really wanted to start a, a second business anyway for her to run. And so it all just lined up and made sense. And if she wasn't such a hard worker um, and just so dedicated to it, there's no way that the young studio would work. But she's just truly amazing at what she does. And um, But it was definitely, you know, there were two or three years there that I wondered if we made the right choice because it, it was a tough business to start. And, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're competing directly against uh, companies that have people who are very, very intelligent and know exactly what they're doing. And it's easy to get, you know, get your butt kicked by that. That's a really neat story. And I was kind of curious too, you know, you, we talked earlier about how you paint for yourself how do you balance that tension between being successful as an artist and being commercially successful? Well, I don't, most days I, I'm not a black and white guy. It's, um, but most days I don't have to deal with that tension because if I'm successful as a fine artist, I, I believe that the De young studios brand will go where, where I want it, where it should go. Um, there are days when, you know, I've got to go, okay, she, she's got a product that she's trying to release and she does need some specific thing. And, and on those occasions I'll bend a little bit and, um, you know, do what I need to do for her or, or sometimes other, um, companies that license from us, I'll have to do something custom and, um, just based on size, specifications or whatever colors that they need. Um, one, one, uh, kind of goofy project I did back in the day. Um, the backup goalie for the Columbus blue jackets, uh, NHL team calls and says he wants a Brown trout helmet for, for his, uh, uniform. And I'm like, well, yeah, I can do a brown trout flank on it. No problem. That, that'll be awesome. He goes, yeah, but the uh, um, manager says it has to be in our team colors, which are red, white, and blue. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not the color of a brown trout. He goes, well, do what you got to do. Like, just make it look kind of brown trouty. So I, 
I did a um, patriotic red, white, and blue brown trout flank on this thing, and I brought it to the local auto um, paint shop, and they put like three coats of auto clear over it, and I'm just like, please, God, don't let the first puck that hits this thing just peel all that paint right off. You know, I have no idea what's going to happen to it. But uh, I never did hear that there was any problem with it. And every time friends and family would catch, uh, you know, just be going by and see this uh, NHL game and see that helmet, they'd take a picture or call me, oh, you got to go, yeah, look at, they're on TV, your helmet's on TV. So that was kind of a, kind of a neat project. Very cool. Have you ever done anything uh, that you thought was too commercial and regretted it later? You know, I can't say that I have um, because it's all a learning process. And if I were to say that it's all been equally as successful, each thing um, would be a complete lie. Some stuff just hasn't worked. But, you know, that's how you learn, right? And uh, hopefully... The next time I went to do something, I, I made those adjustments and, and did a better job or chose a better way of doing it. So, yeah, you can't really spend too much time regretting any, anything like that. I've always tried to run my business with as much integrity as I possibly could. Um, and I think that's really important. And I think that's probably why I don't have too many regrets when it comes to that. No, that's really neat. And, you know, I think most of my listeners know, but if they don't, you know, you spend part of the year in Michigan, part of the year in Montana, and part of the year in the Florida Keys fishing and painting. And I think it's really interesting. I mentioned this yesterday when we were on the phone, you know, most of us struggle with how to integrate our fishing passion with our regular day job. But you've Mm -hmm. successfully put that together. And what's your secret for being able to kind of have it all? an understanding wife. (laughs) Um, man, I, I have, first of all, living in these different places is a dream come true. Each of them is something that is uh, a long time dream realized through making sacrifices and, and figuring out how we can do this. And, um, I don't want people to think that this is just, you know, cause I have so much money, I can just do whatever I want. That's not the case at all. Um, we definitely sacrifice and make decisions based on, you know, how to, how to be in these places and be able to chase the fish there and have the right boats. And, um, some people put their money into their cars and, in houses. I live in a small house and have an old truck, but I've got a flats boat and I've got a bay boat for up here. So, I mean, it just, you know, you do decide what you want to do. And for me, being on the water is, is one of the most important things. So I always make choices with that being the case. Um, but being, being down in the Florida Keys, uh, for the winter is just amazing. Um, there are a lot of cold fronts that move through and shut things down. And during that time, I am highly focused and 
you know, it, it'll be a week, week and a half of just painting every day and getting ready for the next paintings or whatever I have to do. And then all of a sudden, boom, weather goes back up and stabilizes and no wind. And for the next four days straight, I'm up two hours before light rigging. I'm in the boat and to my spot before light and tarpon fish until mid to late afternoon. And so I'm able to kind of structure my work around when the fishing sucks and when it's good. And, uh, you know, if I have projects that need to be done and, um, the fishing's good, I'll still get up and go tarpon fishing. I just won't go quite as far and I'll be back by 11 o'clock and get a half day's work in. So very cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really cool kind of balance, but you know, as much as it sounds like, uh, an excuse that someone would tell their wife, uh, being out there fishing definitely is a big part of my mindset and my, my work at the easel. So if I'm, if I'm not out there chasing fish, the authenticity and the passion in my artwork wouldn't be there. I truly think that. Makes a lot of sense. Can you share with uh, our listeners some of the projects you're working on right now? Um, I've just finished up. Um, and if, if, uh, you follow me on Instagram, maybe you saw it, uh, the pumpkin seed permit, which, um, maybe you love or maybe you hate, but you gotta admit it at least made you smile. And sometimes that's enough for me. Um, I love that piece. I love pumpkin seed, um, sunfish and, uh, to put those colors on a similar shaped giant permit, I thought was just really fun. Um, and along with that mount, so just to explain what it is a little bit, I'm painting on a fiberglass primed, ready to paint mount that I order from a taxidermy um, supply shop. Um, another thing that I'm doing is a series called trout tarpon and that's just painting you know the colors and patterns of different trout on a tarpon and as much as it seems like way out there and you know i'm always very cognitive of is this crossing the line into being hokey or is it fabulous and uh you know when you're doing stuff like i do you're at danger of going past that line and and everyone's got their own opinion. Maybe some people think that I have crossed that line, but I think that, you know, as long as your concept is strong, then you're, you're, you know, you don't go into the hokey zone very quickly. And with trout tarpon, um, I think that, you know, people who just passionately love, catching trout, even little trout in mountain streams. They're the kind of people who just sit with the trout in the water, you know, on your knees in the river rock, just looking at the sun shining on those colors. And to them, there's just nothing better. Then on the other hand, they go down to the keys and fish tarpon in the spring and the adrenaline and the skill and the visuals of a school of tarpon coming up 
towards the boat and you have to make that cast. Like it just appeals to them on a whole nother level. So to take those two things and make it, you know, one piece of art, it just connects with people. And, and it's been cool to see how much people have loved that. So I finished a couple of those this fall too. Very cool. And before I, uh, I let you hop, why don't you let folks know where they can, can find you and on the, on the internet and where they can find you on social media? Well, I try to make it easy. Uh, just my name, Derek, D E R E K D young D E Y O U N G. Um, that's my website, Derek And then on Instagram and uh, Facebook, they can find me just at Derek dot DeYoung. And uh, I post most of my current projects that I'm working on or fishing adventures or whatever I'm doing. I'm, I'm pretty good at getting a couple shots up on there so you can follow along with, with what I'm doing. Very cool. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to chat with me on this snowy Michigan morning. Yeah. Yep. Not doing too much fishing at this point. So <laughs> this is a good time of year to, 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 uh, get me on the horn. Well, I really appreciate it, Derek. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Marvin. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, thanks to our sponsor, Norvice. Check out the Norvice system at www.nor-vice.com. And don't forget to use the coupon code from the top of the show to get 20% off between now and the end of November. And folks, thanks so much for being a listener. Uh, We really appreciate it. Do us a favor. Please leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice and subscribe. Or even better, check out our new apps in the Apple App Store or in the Android Store of your choice. All you have to do is search the Articulate Fly. Thanks again, everybody. Tight lines.